Good morning, church family. Let's read the Holy Word today. If you would stand. Uh, This morning's passage is going to be from the 10th chapter of Mark, verses 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. You are able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants upon them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this building and in our hearts this morning, Father. We thank you for this holy word that you have given us to help us to come to a better understanding of your power and your glory and your love and your mercy and your grace for us, Father. I pray now, Father, that uh, through the scripture we will have great understanding and insights like we have never had before, Father. For it's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Don't mind me, Drew. I'll grab this. Did y'all know that there haven't been any snakes in Ireland since the glaciers rolled out after the last ice age? St. Patrick did not actually drive any snakes out of Ireland. Uh, There's no evidence that St. Patrick explained the Trinity to the Irish with a shamrock, with a three-leaf clover. To my knowledge, he did not invent green beer. Um, I don't think he changed the color of the Chicago River. So why is it, after 1,600 years, we still take one day a year and remember the life of this man, Patrick? You know, Patrick wasn't actually even Irish. He was born in Britain. This man, Patrick, born in Britain uh, in the 4th century, 16 years old, stolen by pirates, as people in 4th century Britain tend to be, I guess. Um, 
Taken to Ireland where he becomes a slave. For the next 16 years, Patrick was a slave watching over the livestock in the fields until one day he escaped, made his way back to his homeland and to his family. It wasn't long after that that this man Patrick returned to Ireland as one of, if not the first missionary of the gospel to those people. He gave up everything to share the gospel with those that had enslaved him. He was a champion for the value of women. He was a champion of the anti-slavery movement long before the corporate church rightfully adopted that stance. He is largely responsible for establishing the church, bringing the gospel to Ireland. He was a selfless servant doing a thankless job on the very edge of the known world. That's why 1,600 years later, we still remember him. He modeled his life after his Savior, that of a selfless servant. This morning, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're reminded Mark, Mark is kind of a story told in, in three acts. Act one, which is what we've largely been looking at over the last couple of months, is, is chapter one through about the middle of chapter eight. It focuses on establishing who Jesus is. It is filled with miracles and wonders. It is fast-paced. It is, it is the section in which Mark establishes Jesus' power and authority both over the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Now, Act 3, the final act, starts in chapter 11. It's in Jerusalem. It's Holy Week. The triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, the Last Supper, The betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection. That's all from chapters 11 to 16 in Mark. Today we find ourselves in that middle section, Act 2. It's the bridge between these kind of two dramatic parts. It's, It's the section in which Jesus is on his way from the villages and towns in Galilee to Jerusalem. And Act 2 focuses largely on the disciples. Jesus is is desperately teaching the disciples in these, in these last weeks before he enters into Jerusalem, before the ball really starts rolling downhill. He's getting them to understand what it actually means that he is the Messiah and the things that are going to come to pass. If you remember... At the very beginning of the study on Mark, I told you the story the first time that I read Mark all the way through. I encouraged you to do the same. 
And in reading Mark in one sitting, you get so much um, in-depth context and meaning. The, the verse numbers and chapter numbers and subheadings begin to fade away. And you see the pace and rhythm of Jesus' ministry, the urgency with which he spent his time here on earth, the intimacy he had with his disciples. And you also see how ridiculous his disciples often were. Much of that comes from this section in the middle of the gospel where we find ourselves today. Over and over and over again. The disciples don't understand. They don't understand the miracles. They don't understand the parables. They don't quite get what Jesus means when he says that he is the Messiah, when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. In in this section in particular, two and a half chapters, on three separate occasions, on this journey from the villages in Galilee to the gates of Jerusalem, Jesus predicts his death for the disciples. He tells them what's going to come to pass, and every time it works out exactly the same. Jesus predicts his death. The disciples misunderstand, and they act out of pride or self-interest. And Jesus then patiently teaches them about humility and service. Three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, and now in this section, in this passage that Tom read us this morning in chapter 10. Now, in this passage, the third cycle where Jesus is teaching about his death and then responding to the misunderstanding of the disciples, this is the first time that Jesus tells them why all of this is to come to pass. So if you go back in Mark chapter 10, looking all the way back to verse 32, you see the picture, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the road, they're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of his disciples. He can sense the disciples behind him. They're they're apprehensive, they're a little nervous, they're even scared. And Jesus being the loving, gentle Messiah that he is, stops, they kind of pull over on the side of the road, they come to a rest stop. And he's like, all right, guys, I can sense you're feeling nervous. I can sense you're feeling anxious. I can sense you're feeling scared. Just so I know that we're all on the same page. Let me reiterate what's about to happen. Like Jerusalem is right there. We're about to enter the gates. And I just need to know that you've heard me say this. So I'm going to tell you again. When we get there, when we enter into Jerusalem, I'm going to eventually be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to give me to the Romans. I'm going to be mocked and tortured. I'm going to be executed. And then I'm going to rise rise again on the third day. We all on the same page? We get it? This is the third time I've told you guys this. And they're kind of nodding, all right, all right, all right. And then the two brothers, James and John, bless their hearts, come with just the most logical response, which is, all right, so we get it. You're the Messiah, all-powerful, all that good stuff. Um, We understand, by the way, you're going to do whatever we ask since you are all-powerful, right? Like, we've been with you this whole time, so... So I just want to make sure we're, we're going to get 
what's coming to us. I mean, it's, it's shocking. It would be as though my best friend came to me and said, Hannah, I, I, I've got terrible news. I just went to the doctor this week. I've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. They've said I've got about a month to live. And my response to him was, oh, man, that's rough. Um, but when you die, can I get all your stuff? That's what James and John are doing here. Jesus, when you enter into glory, when you're sitting on that all-powerful throne, we just want to make sure that we're the ones sitting to your right and to your left. We want to be in those chairs that the chairman of the deacons and the minister of music used to sit in. When people look at you, we want them to see us too. That's cool, right? And Jesus, patient, kind, loving, I'm sure he sighed. (sighs) Guys, you have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking. Are you ready to drink of the cup I'm going to drink from? Are you ready to be baptized in the baptism like me? What he's talking about there is are you ready for the, the suffering and the judgment that's coming my way? And they're like, yeah, cool, we got that. We, we're good. Just promise us that we're going to be on your right and on your left. They want to have those seats of power. Jesus uses this opportunity as the other 10 disciples hear this and they're upset, indignant, because James and John are trying to, trying to edge them all out. They're trying to get the most powerful spot. We've seen them throughout this journey back to Jerusalem arguing time and time again about who amongst them is the greatest. And they're trying to edge out the rest of them to be the greatest. Get Jesus to say, yes, you two are the greatest. Jesus sees all of these disciples and he uses it as a moment to teach them, to teach them about what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, the son of man, me, all powerful, 100% man, 100% divine. I came not to be served, but to serve And to give my life as ransom for many. Right there, Mark 10, verse 45. That is largely viewed as Mark's thesis statement. It is one of the key passages in the entire Bible. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. That word ransom. It's not a word we use very often unless we're watching some true crime thing on Netflix. In the modern English language, outside of like kidnapping, you don't hear that word very much. But in ancient Greek, it had a very specific meaning. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Matthew chapter 20 when Matthew is retelling this exact same story. And what that word ransom meant in ancient Greek was a sum of money that was paid to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. The ransomer would come and and he would bring with him um, a massive 
amount of money, a sacrificial amount of money in order to compensate the slave owner for his slave, thus buying the absolute, ultimate, and unqualified freedom of that slave. As of that moment, when that ransom was paid, the slave was made free at that moment and for always. Jesus tells his disciples, I have come to die. That's what's about to happen. And the reason all of these things are going to come to pass, the reason I am voluntarily walking into Jerusalem is so that I may sacrifice myself so that you may be free. I am coming to sacrifice my life to buy your freedom. It's the first time the disciples have heard why all of these things are going to happen. And isn't it interesting that this verse This foundational key verse comes in the context of a discussion on what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Jesus tells his disciples, I, the Son of God, 100% divine, 100% man, am not here to be served. I'm here to serve. I'm here to ransom my life for you. In Matthew chapter 20, he says, therefore, that's what greatness looks like. That's what you should practice. This selfless service. Jesus bought our ultimate unqualified freedom with his life. As such, we become free citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells his disciples in these final moments before he enters into Jerusalem, quite literally days before the cross, he makes sure they understand, I am buying your freedom, and as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you need to know what greatness is. Greatness is selfless service. The most valued attribute in the kingdom of heaven is selfless service. This idea that that service leads to greatness is the instance where the ethics of the kingdom of God and the ethics of the world clash most violently. You see, what the world tells us is greatness comes from success, which leads to power, and that power gives us influence over the people and culture around us. That's how you become great. You can move the chess pieces around the board as you see fit. That's how you really will influence the world. Power. And Jesus says, that's what the, that's what the power looks like in Rome. Look at Caesar. Look at the senators. They have power and they lord it over their people, their tyrants. But on the other end of the spectrum, in the kingdom of heaven, the preeminent virtue is service. 
as modeled by Jesus, as modeled by God himself in flesh. It's not power, it's the opposite. It's humbling yourself and becoming a slave to all. What Jesus is telling his disciples in this moment, in these last days before they enter the gates into Jerusalem, before the cross, he is making sure they understand. The road to success and to power and the road to the cross lead in opposite directions. The road to success and to power and the road to the cross lead in opposite directions. Every time I read this, I am shocked and amazed that the disciples still can't grasp this concept. They walked with Jesus for three years. They saw the miracles with their own eyes. They heard the Sermon on the Mount with their own ears. They knew him intimately, personally. They still couldn't figure it out. And then I am reminded that 2,000 years later, we sit here and we still have not grasped the concept that following Jesus, discipleship, is self-denying, self-risking, self-giving, lowly service. We still just can't quite get there. We still seek greatness, influence through success and through money and through politics. That's how we're going to change the world, right? Even with the hindsight of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which keep in mind the disciples didn't have yet. We do. And we still can't quite Figure it out. We serve, but we serve in the same way that James and John did as a way to increase our power and influence. We serve the kingdom wrong. And we serve the kingdom wrong for two reasons. We serve the kingdom wrong because we get Jesus wrong. And we serve the kingdom wrong because we get people wrong. We serve the kingdom wrong because we get Jesus wrong. We serve him because like James and John, we think we're going to get something in return. I'm happy to enter into the service of the all-powerful son of God. Absolutely. Because imagine all the stuff he could give me. Jesus, I'm happy to serve. And all I ask in return is a promotion. Seems like a fair trade. I'm happy to serve. All I ask is a good spouse. 
All I ask is a child. All I ask is financial stability. All I ask is happiness. That never ends well. It always ends in dejection and frustration when we don't get what we feel like we're owed. Thank you, JJ. <laughs> Jesus, I, I, have, I have taught a Bible study every week for the last 10 years. How come all my sisters are married and I'm not? Jesus, I write my tithe check every single month. Why is it that guy that sits in the cubicle next to me, whose life does not reflect your glory, how come he got the promotion and I didn't? Jesus, I have given everything and all I've ever asked for was a child. It's not fair. We serve the kingdom wrong because we get Jesus wrong. We think he's an all-powerful slot machine. And the more we serve, the more opportunities we get to pull that arm. And eventually it's going to come up all cherries. The, The other part of getting Jesus wrong is we serve the kingdom wrong because we think somehow we're going to be able to repay the debt, that ransom that has been paid for us. We have this compulsion, this obligation. Jesus, I am grateful beyond words for your sacrifice, for the ransom you paid for my life. How many times do I need to serve in the nursery to pay you back? Jesus gave his life to buy my unqualified freedom. Jesus paid my debt to save my soul from eternal damnation. The idea that I could possibly do anything to ever repay that makes Jesus so much smaller than he is. The idea that my service, my good deeds, could somehow make up for his sacrifice makes his sacrifice so much less than it is. Serving from that place invariably leads to exhaustion. It leads to burnout. Because we can, we can never do enough. It becomes this endless cycle of obligations that we can't meet, born out of guilt that we should not have. It ends up killing us. I recently talked to a woman that has been a believer her entire life. She has served in the church her entire life. 
She admittedly has served out of obligation and guilt. And she said, my faith has died under the weight of my service. How many of us feel that? Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us. And he said to us, I did not come to be served. I did not do this so that you could pay me back. And yet we serve the kingdom wrongly because we get his sacrifice wrong. The other reason we serve the kingdom wrong is because we get people wrong. We put people, we put society, we put our culture on a pedestal and we allow them to speak meaning into our life. We allow them to tell us how valued we are. We desperately want someone to tell us that we matter as though being a child of God, being adopted into the family of the creator of the universe is not enough. We just need someone to tell us that we're good people. And so we serve to glorify ourselves. It's the exact same premise that compels us as we walk into a coffee shop and, and we buy our coffee and we've got our dollar and there's that, there's that tip jar with the quippy pun on it and I want to make sure I put my dollar in the tip jar so the employees get their share but there's no way I'm putting that dollar in there unless the employees are looking at me. I need them to know that I've given something to them. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I need to be recognized for my good deeds. It makes me feel better and I deserve it, right? You know, as Nick and I served for nearly nine years as missionaries in Italy, we would, we would receive um, short-term trips, these groups of people that would come over and help. They'd help for a week, or sometimes we'd have college students come over uh, on their summer break and come over for a month, and, and it drove me crazy because these people that would come over to serve couldn't do anything without snapping a selfie. They couldn't do anything without documenting it on the internet. Hey, I just shared the gospel with this guy in the cafeteria. Hey, I just helped this refugee learn a couple of words in English. And it made my head explode because it completely discounted what we were doing. It made a mockery of our ministry that these, these people would come and they would serve and they just desperately wanted everybody back in America to tell them how good they were To recognize their service and their sacrifice. 
And then I realized the hypocrisy in that. It drove me crazy because it was taking the spotlight off of what I was doing. Hey, don't, don't applaud this guy. He's here for six days. He was in Venice for three of them. What about me? When we were there, the thing that drove me more crazy than anything else was hearing someone tell me how lucky I was. You live in Italy? Oh, you're so lucky. I studied abroad there for a semester in Florence. It's beautiful. Went there on my honeymoon. As though, as though they pictured my life, you know, going to work on a gondola, <laughs> sipping a glass of red wine while some dude sang opera in front of the Roman Colosseum. And they, they didn't understand how hard it was. That wasn't real life in Italy. I needed them to know. I gave up friends and family and a career and cars and houses. I sacrificed everyone to be here. Don't reduce it to a vacation. I desperately needed someone to recognize my sacrifice. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that if you give, if you serve, if you sacrifice in view of other people so that they see it, well, you've already got your reward. If what you want is to be patted on the back and get a couple of attaboys, congratulations, you just got it. It's not the type of service that Jesus is talking about. Have you guys ever heard of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf? I bet a lot of you haven't. Um, famous von Zinzendorf, of the German von Zinzendorfs. Zinzendorf actually was an 18th century German noble. He gave up everything, dedicated his life and his fortune to service, to spreading the gospel around the world, to making Jesus famous. Zinzendorf could rightfully be called the father of modern missions. That's a title that usually goes to William Carey. Zinzendorf actually predated Kerry by 60 years. Through his efforts, he sent over 225 missionaries around the world. Through his efforts, churches were established in the West Indies, in Greenland, here in North America amongst, amongst the Native Americans. South America, Africa, Asia. His teachings and his discipleship and his example were incredibly influential on John Wesley. The world was changed through this man, and yet his name is largely lost to history. Which should be no surprise, because his mantra as he was sending out missionaries, as he was going himself, he said, your goal should be to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. 
It sounds super morbid. But if you think about it, it is so beautiful. Your service shouldn't be such that someday they name a chapel after you. They name a wing at a seminary after you. They write books about you. Your service should be so that someday chapels are built to glorify God. So that books are written about this ransom that was paid for us. And no one ever remembers you because your only goal was to make him famous. Think about the freedom in that. Imagine being so completely, utterly fulfilled. So incredibly and completely secure in your identity as a son of God, a daughter of God, in your relationship with the creator of the universe. So secure in your eternal future that you need nothing from the world. So completely and utterly fulfilled that all you want to do is glorify God. So free that you can serve without obligation or expectation. That's freedom. If you came here this morning curious about this Jesus that you've heard about, Seems like a good dude. I feel like I could follow him. If you came here this morning weighing the pros and cons, trying to determine what it costs to follow Jesus, hear me say this it costs nothing. The relationship between God and his people is servant and served. But it is exactly opposite of what we as humans would expect or assume. God himself came here for us. God himself came here to serve his people, not to be served. To ransom his life for our freedom. It costs nothing because Jesus gave himself to us freely. And that freedom that was purchased frees us to do the same. Would you pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And this morning we stand in this room humbled and amazed by your presence. Grateful beyond the ability to articulate 
that you have paid the ransom for our ultimate and unqualified freedom so that we may be citizens of your kingdom. Allow us to give of ourselves. Allow us to serve without obligation or expectation so that you may be made famous. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.